Welcome to the Regulatory Transparency Project's fourth branch podcast series. All expressions of opinion are those of the speaker. Welcome to another episode of the Regulatory Transparency Project's Explainer Podcast Series. My name is Colton Grob. I'm the Associate Director of RTP, and I'll be your host today. I have with me two policy experts in the fields of financial services, banking, and consumer protection. We're honored to have both of them on our podcast. The first is Aaron Klein. Aaron is a fellow at the Brookings Institution here in Washington, D.C., and he serves as the Policy Director for its Center on Regulation and Markets. Before joining Brookings, Aaron directed the Bipartisan Policy Center's Financial Regulatory Reform Initiative and served at the Treasury Department as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Economic Policy. The second expert to join us today is Diego Zuolaga. Diego is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, where he covers financial technology and consumer credit. Diego is also the author of the Community Reinvestment Act and the Age of Fintech and Bank Competition. Before joining Cato, Diego was the head of financial services and tech policy at the Institute of Economic Affairs in London. The topic of today's podcast is the Community Reinvestment Act. I won't pretend to be the expert in this particular conversation, so Diego, can you take us through the Community Reinvestment Act? What is its history and how has it been applied in practice? Sure. The the Community Reinvestment Act is a law that was passed uh, in 1977. And the purpose of it was to instruct financial regulators, the three regulators that regulate banks and thrifts in the United States, that is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the Office of the Controller of the Currency, and the Federal Reserve Board, to, uh, when they examined banks, ensure that they, quote, serve the convenience and needs of the communities where they conduct business. Now, the mid to late 1970s was a very active uh, legislative period in the area of financial regulation. It's when a lot of the consumer protection laws that still apply today, from the uh, Equal Credit Opportunity Act to the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act uh, to the CRA itself, um, were passed. And uh, this was a time when, following enactment of the Civil Rights Act and the Fair Housing Act in the late 19, mid to late 1960s, there was increased awareness about the legacy of institutionalized discrimination and the wealth inequalities and other economic circumstances that that discrimination had created. And one of them was the reluctance and sometimes utter unwillingness of uh, financial institutions to lend in certain neighborhoods. Uh, these tended to be low-income and minority neighborhoods. And, of course, the two categories, because of discrimination in part, uh, often overlapped at the time and, and, and regrettably to some extent still do today. And so the purpose of the CRA was to um, give banks an incentive through their regulatory examinations to lend all across the geographic areas where they had activity. And at the time, obviously, banking activity was mostly physical. It was done via offices. It was done via branches and then later with ATMs. And those have become the flags that regulators look at to see where banks have, quote-unquote, planted their activity. Now, my argument in the paper that you cited, the Community Reinvestment Act in the Age of Fintech and Bank Competition, is that in the 42 years since passage of the CRA, There have been a lot of changes to the way that we bank in the United States, both from a regulatory as well as a technological perspective, and that therefore both the design as well as the mission of the CRA is not fit for purpose in terms of improving financial inclusion and increasing access to opportunity and and, um, and, economic success via credit 
to minorities and low-income individuals in the way that it was. The United States in the 70s um, had a, primarily a unit banking system. That means very small banks that didn't branch. There were a lot of restrictions on branching. And that means that if you were a borrower, you were almost completely reliant on that one institution to get credit for your mortgage or your small business. Since then, we've had, luckily, a, a gradual deregulation of branching. And that has increased bank competition in any uh, individual geographic area, but we've also had an increase in the number of non-bank providers of credit. Now fintech companies, but mortgage companies before 2008. And I think as a result of that, the focus of the CRA only on banks and thrifts, and its focus on keeping lending where the deposits are collected, doesn't reflect economic circumstances today. And in addition, there are some other concerns I have about safety and soundness and also where the CRA lending is actually going, what sort of borrowers it's actually going to for the most part, which I'm, I'm happy to flesh out, but I'll let uh, Aaron add to that. Yeah, let, me, let me add a couple other uh, points and facts and, and flesh out. Uh, the reality is that the Community Reinvestment Act applies a test that regulators essentially have developed into a what most people here could remember from their academic days as pass-fail, with there being two levels of pass, pass and high pass. And uh, much like great inflation has occurred in universities throughout the country, Today, almost everybody passes their CRA exam as given by the regulators. I think about 96% of America's 5,600 or so odd banks has received either a pass or high pass, which is kind of amazing when you consider the lack of availability of credit, the large amount of un and underbanked people, that is people who may have bank accounts but still need to use non-mainstream financial services products, which is roughly about one in four Americans, maybe one in five, who have a bank account still need to use a check casher or a payday lender or wire transmitter because banks aren't meeting their needs. The Community Reinvestment Act's concept is predicated on this idea that a bank is a chartered entity. Every bank in America has received a charter either from their state government or their federal government, which is a right granted by the state to operate a very special type of institution with a series of federal government uh, uh, benefits, subsidies, and regulatory costs. And the core concept behind it is that you have a duty to serve those in your community. That is kind of the cost of admission of this charter. Uh, and I think in that framework, it kind of makes a little bit of sense why banks are held to higher standards, at least in theory, whether the actual implication of that regulatory test meets those standards is a different issue. Uh, two other points I want to raise. One is a narrative of what the CRA is not. The CRA was not the cause of the financial crisis. In fact, mortgage loans and many of the loans that were at the root of this were originated by mortgage brokers who are not subject to the Community Reinvestment Act, securitized by standalone investment banks who are not subject to the Community Reinvestment Act, purchased either into the private mortgage market by entities not subject to the Community Reinvestment Act, or brought to Fannie or Freddie entities that are not subject to the Community Reinvestment Act. So there's been a false narrative that has conflated the fact that there were many subprime mortgages and borrowers with the fact that a Community Reinvestment Act applies to banks which are purchasers or originators of some of these mortgages actually was the minority of the mortgages involved. Lastly, 
It's important to point out a group that was excluded from the Community Reinvestment Act when it was passed that has also changed a lot. Because I do agree with, with you that the world is radically different than it was in 1977. Banks and financial institutions, uh, geographic area has changed as a result of legal deregulation and technolo technological innovation. But one group that's also fundamentally changed is that of credit unions. Credit unions are, were originally small, predominantly uh, uh, organizations where they pooled savings and gave very limited types of lending based on a tightly knit common bond, often employees at the same air, uh, 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 employment facility, sometimes geography within the same area. Most credit unions to, to this day still resemble that. But there's a handful that have evolved into entities that advertise great rates for everyone or have found loopholes through the common bond with the blessing of their regulator to almost become Shakespearean in the sense that everybody who, if your word is your bond, then all who speak share a common bond. I'll pick one of many, uh, uh, NASA Federal Credit Union, if you, they advertise, borrow from us if you want to be as smart as a rocket scientist. To become a member of NASA Federal Credit Union, you have to be a friend of space. So all of us who share the common bond that we are not enemies of space are eligible. That really means that you join an organization called Friends of Space, which costs $5 to join, which the credit union will pay for you, in which case then they will make any of their products available to you. And so the original idea on the Community Reinvestment Act excluded credit unions because they had a legal uh, obligation to serve their members because their members were a very, very small subset of humanity shared by a common bond. In today's evolution, a small number of credit unions now essentially serve anyone and aspire to serve anyone. And then they've become less, you know, more, more and more like banks, in which case, in my opinion, they should be treated more and more like banks and have a duty to serve the government accountability office in a study of credit unions uh, about 10 years ago, it would be wonderful to be, to be updated, found, in fact, that there were many credit unions that targeted upper-income individuals within their area and purposefully lacked serving lower- and moderate-income individuals, which is the spirit of the Community Reinvestment Act. So I actually have a proposal that would say, if you want to have a universal service membership credit union model and offer great rates to everyone, then you need to serve everyone, and your exclusion from the same regulation that applies to banks to have a duty, affirmative duty to serve their full population should apply to you. One thing that I would add to uh, what, what Aaron just said and, and what I, uh, my, my opening remarks is that the CRA's regulations, the implementing rules that the three regulators I mentioned, the Fed, the FDIC, and the OCC, use in evaluating banks, are vague. The criteria are not numerical because the CRA was not meant to be a credit allocation scheme. But as a result of that, it's difficult to judge uh, how to evaluate performance and how to rank institutions and so on. And one of the reasons 96% of institutions uh, get a satisfactory rating is precisely the vague nature of the examinations. And um, even though from the mid-90s there was more of a focus on the outcomes of CRA-eligible lending, that is, how much of the activities that are counted under the CRA are you actually undertaking, how many mortgages and small business loans are you making in 
low and moderate income areas? Uh, how many services are you providing in upper income versus lower income areas and so on? Since the mid-90s, we've focused much more on that and I think that's an improvement over just saying, what are your efforts or what are your plans for doing something? Because those are just commitments. Uh, even, even in spite of that, I still think there are problems in terms of targeting the mission of the CRA to the people that we're actually trying to help. One of the things that my research um, has identified is looking at um, loan level data for the District of Columbia is that about 70% of mortgage loans that are eligible for CRA credit because they're done in an area that is low uh, and moderate income or to borrowers that are low income uh, is going to actually upper income borrowers. So it's mostly the gentrifiers that are getting the CRA eligible loans, and that's good for them, and it may be good for the institution that makes the loan, but it's certainly not the spirit of the CRA. It meets the letter of the law because the regulations are such that if you lend in a low-income area, regardless of borrower, you get CRA points. But that wasn't the purpose. So this is an area where we'd have common ground, that I think you shouldn't get CRA credit for uh, lending to somebody of high income. And I, I commend the element of your research and, and agree with its findings and think we're replicating this mistake with other proposals that are m being couched as uh, expanding opportunity to lower income people, but really are about providing benefits for activity that's going on anyways that's benefiting wealthier people. I think the opportunity zone tax credit will be shown to be a, a gentrification machine far more often than it's likely to be a catalyst for income into into raising centers of livings for lower income people. Uh, I likewise share your concerns and, and think your research uncovered some interesting facts and think had if regulators were focused on that, making the test more difficult, applying it more narrowly to lower income people, not just to up not just to lower income areas, that could be an improvement. But what I take away from 96% getting a pass or a high pass, isn't so much the vagueness of it, is that the test is easy, right? You know, you have to square two circles. One is 96% of financial institutions are passing their Community Reinvestment Act, and the experience of the fact that, you know, 25 to 30% of America is un and underbanked. And I have a hard time squaring those two circles without coming back to this test is too easy, and the vagueness can be interpreted in both dimensions. The last point I'd make is the penalty for failure is not that severe. Unlike, say, uh, other things where if you fail a bank regulatory safety and soundness examination, there are really strong penalties, including ultimately the loss of your charter being at stake. Failing a Community Reinvestment Act uh, is, is you know, the, the ramifications are you can't be bought and merge with another entity, you get some levels of restriction on growth. Not really, though. No, it's mostly the the most the, the greatest penalty is an inability to expand or merge. Yeah. Uh, but for deposit facilities, so it depends on how you define expansion. If you increased activity from your existing operations, then you wouldn't be penalized. Right. So the penalty of failure is minimal. The probability of failure is extremely minimal. Right. So the incentives of performance. Right. And by the way, the incentive to go from pass to high pass is also somewhat uh, difficult. I mean, there are some branding or some value. How many of you picked your bank on the basis of your bank CRA rating? How many of you know your bank CRA? They are made public. 
often with a great lag, uh, but it is one of the few you talk about regulatory transparency. Your banks, um, your bank regulators will give the bank something called a camel rating, which is its core safety and soundness rating that looks at its capital, its assets, its earnings, its management, its liquidity. That is not made public, uh, but a bank CRA exam is. So it is more transparent than the underlying safety and soundness regulation. There is some level of social sanction or social penalty because, especially for larger institutions, if they get bad CRA outcomes, there are community groups that will protest outside the offices and, you know, reputationally that can be quite damaging. And it can be also a driver of potential lawsuits if it was perceived that uh, not lending in low-income areas also means that there are other practices that are suspect. I I think in reality, the cause and effect of that is flipped. So the biggest institution who got a non-satisfactory is Wells Fargo, but it actually had a satisfactory, I think it had a highly satisfactory relation uh, CRA exam based on the contents of its CRA when the what actually occurred at Wells in terms of the fake account scandal came to light, which I think is what caused a lot of the group anger and public outrage, uh, rightfully so in my opinion, then they went and got a new rating. One of the interesting facts about CRA, which I hadn't fully appreciated until the Wells incident, was that you can be downgraded for any other I- illegal impropriety not related to serving low-income individuals. So Wells' downgrade was not the product of a change in its... Uh, ent- in Lending its, performance or services provision. Any of the scores, any of the metrics, anything in this vague examination process. Its downgrade was solely the result of a clause in CRA which says that essentially you have to be an upstanding citizen. So it's like you need to do... You have a duty to serve everybody in your community and to be an upstanding citizen, and if we catch you doing something wrong, even if that wrong is nothing to do with being targeted to low-income people, if it's just a generic wrong, you will get a negative CRA. Unclear what it did in terms of the in terms of the camels, uh, which is the more uh, uh, significant sanction, but it's it's just another element to point in this whole CRA thing is it's not you can fail for nothing to do with what's on the test. Well, you you mentioned the CRA's relationship to the financial crisis, and I have to say I wholeheartedly agree with you that the CRA played a very small role, if any, in any kind of risky lending during the crisis. It wasn't systemic, but we do have some evidence that the CRA does encourage riskier lending or lending that can be riskier to bank portfolios in some circumstances. There have been a couple of papers looking at how banks behave immediately before their CRA evaluations, and there's some evidence that they increase their loans that then go on and default, so their portfolio becomes riskier before CRA evaluations because maybe they're trying to get a look good in front of the regulator by making loans that they otherwise wouldn't make. There was also a, a former community head of community affairs at J.P. Morgan Chase who wrote for the San Francisco Fed. This is before the financial crisis, right as the financial crisis was getting started. Uh, he wrote an essay in which he said that in cases they were prepared to subsidize CRA eligible lending by as much as eight thousand dollars. That's out of the bottom line of the bank, which may annoy the shareholders, but it's also potentially concerning from a safety and soundness uh, viewpoint. So there are instances in which the evidence suggests that CRA lending is riskier. I would, however, agree with Aaron, and one of the reasons I explored this question of loans going to gentrifiers is that most of the evidence doesn't find that CRA lending is riskier. 
And the thing that tipped me off was the fact that in one of the studies, and this was, I think, the Chicago Fed, they actually listed the median credit score of the borrowers inside and outside CRA areas. And the inside CRA area score was much higher. And so that led me to think, well, maybe it is because they are, quote unquote, skimming off the top. They're taking the best residents of an eligible area. And um, I mean, not necessarily targeting it. I don't think this is, this is necessarily a very activist stance on the part of the bank. But you know you have to lend in all areas. And then you have safety and soundness concerns. And you want to make money off your loan. And you want uh, you know, someone who will use other services that you provide and so on. And upper income borrowers tend to be more attractive on all of those counts. So it's a way to make everything compatible. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting because in, in your history, you do a very good job in the paper of describing how some of the racial segregation, because we target both geography and uh, race and low and moderate income in this question, and why are these also correlated, right? One element is this history of discrimination, but one component of that was the redlining, which was created precisely because the banking system at the federal government's strong urging incentive and subsidization drew physical maps with physical red lines on these maps to say lend to people of different races in these areas in order to encourage the segregation of the new suburban America. And this was the government as long as well as private actors, not just the government. The government plays a large and deleterious role, I mean deeply harmful in creating these low and moderate income areas. As society has evolved, and in many ways uh, segregation has improved, not nearly as much as I think we would all like, but we've, we are in a more desegregated environment, uh, you then have this opportunity to find pockets of high income, uh, and you've always had the opportunity to find pockets of high income in minority and low-income communities, whether or not they've been more or less segregated. But in, the, in this world, particularly with, with you know, advanced technology. You mentioned the point about credit scores. Credit scores are also interesting because you talk about kind of the risky nature of the borrower. And uh, you know, we use a credit scored system. I think many of the listeners would even kind of know FICO. It's meant to, 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 to look like your SAT, right? Close to an 800 is, is good and it's hard to really get below a 400 just by being in the system. By the way, your SAT, you write your name to get a 400. Nobody actually puts their name into the system. The system is created about you without your consent, including information that may or may not be accurate about you, promulgated about you, with limited recourse what you as a person can do to correct the record of this system. More than, less than half of Americans are considered prime credit. We are a majority of, of the country is a subprime nation. Now, one statistic I've heard often cited, but I've not been able to track it down, is over 80% of Americans have never actually defaulted on a loan. But less than 50% of Americans are considered prime credits. And so a lot of this kind of perception of risk stems from individuals not having access to a credit system and a credit system preferencing certain individuals and not others to make their risk levels appear different. I'm not trying to say that this, that CRA loans aren't potentially riskier than non-CRA loans if they were actually targeted to the right people. You, you've posited another problem, which I agree with, which is people are counting a CRA credit 
activity that is not part of their affirmative duty to serve the low and moderate income parts of their community. I'm also pointing to the fact that our measures of risk are off, and they're off in a way that's serially biased and negative towards people who come from poorer families, which by definition are overrepresented in uh, minority communities, and by the way, even among poor uh, white people. Absolutely. And, and, you know, minority communities also have a lower median age, and you need to have been in the system a long enough time to uh, figure, I am an immigrant, and it took me about a year and a half to get to a reasonably close to prime uh, credit score, just because of the duration of my credit record wasn't long enough. Right. And was your risk profile meaningfully changed over that 18 months? Well, the, the interesting thing is that you have a test, which is I did business with American Express when I was based in the UK, and I called them, and they were willing to give me a credit line, um, which on no other lender, you, on, on the, the basis, basis of, of my you, existing record. Of, of with your them. foreign, of your UK right. record, uh-huh. right? If you'd gone to an American institution, in other words, they didn't, they probably booked your loan in the UK, maybe. I think they use, they have a, they have a scheme for, they have a system for doing these kinds of transfers. And um, I wonder if you counted, I wonder if you counted as a CRA. Right, exactly. Well, it's consumer credit, so it's not strictly within the definition of, of, uh, of CRA lending, although they do count some uh, forms of that. You mentioned, uh, Aaron, something which I think is very interesting, which is the question of um, gentrification and displacement, because it is plausible for someone who is a supporter of the CRA. It is plausible to think, look, even loans that go to upper income individuals are desirable because we want what we really want to do, and this was a major concern in the 1970s, is to revitalize declining urban communities. And so to the extent we have people who will set up businesses, people who have existing high incomes and so on, come in and move, that's a good idea because it's good for the neighborhood, right? That's a plausible argument. The problem is that from my data in DC, there seems to be a strong relationship between CRA lending and demographic change and not in um, in an auspicious way for minority populations. The more CRA, CRA lending you get in a community, the starker the decline has been over the last five, six years in the minority share of that census tracts um, population. And I'm not saying that the CRA l- lending necessarily causes or is the main driver of that decline, but the fact that you're counting mortgages made in those tracts gives banks an additional incentive to operate in those areas. And if what we're trying to do is improve the economic condition, particularly of renters, minority renters, who are the people most affected by this because they build no equity, even if when they move out, they, they don't have anything to sell. And often no credit history. And often no credit history. Uh, that, is a, that is a major concern. Well, thank you, Diego and Aaron. That was a really great explanation of the CRA. I think we covered much more than I intended for us to cover, actually. So if we could transition into why the CRA is important today, why are we discussing it right now, for example, and, and what makes it especially relevant? So I, I think the biggest reason why it's, it's relevant is the comptroller of the currency has decided to try to change it significantly. Uh, and he's, he makes this decision, and this is, uh, Diego Seitz said in, in, in his work, and the comptroller said it, very much on his personal experience involving his institution that he worked at prior to becoming comptroller. And as we said before, the CRA doesn't have a tremendous amount of teeth to it in terms of your thing. But one element that it does, the time that it is most impactful is if you're trying to buy or sell your bank. That's the time in which the CRA really can kind of grind something to a halt. Um, 
And that's what happened. Uh, the comptroller has said that's been his motivation for it. And he's prompted this. I'm a little, uh, if I had my druthers, I would be focusing our energy not on the Community Reinvestment Act, but on some of the other consumer protection acts that Diego mentioned from that same era, uh, most notably the Equal Credit Opportunity Act or ECOA, and thinking about how advances in underwriting technology already, as well as potentially transformative changes with the advent of machine learning, big data, alternative data, and eventually potentially artificial intelligence, how that is coming up against some of the ideas of protected class enshrined in the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. So if you were to say to me, Aaron, like, what is the problem or what regulation could be modernized to unleash credit in a way that is going to make potentially this transformative effect to square the circle of the problems I've been citing, which is uh, continued lack of access to credit or reasonably priced services and the use of the non-financial mainstream by large swaths of Americans and the change of technology and financial services, I would say this is this should be exactly where you're starting. The Comptroller decided to focus on this Community Reinvestment Act issue, uh, likely to put out new regulations, uh, either potentially with the FDIC, possibly with the third regulatory body, the Federal Reserve, who seems to be the least interested in the Comptroller's proposal. And this is all likely to come to a head sometime around December and January. That's right. Uh, the, the reason it's timely is that there are these moves to change the regulations. Um, and controller routing, as, as Aaron mentioned, is a former banker, and he has argued that the CRA needs to become more quantitative, that there need to be at least complementary, if not substitute, metric measures that take account of some of the factors that the Community Reinvestment Act looks at, lending primarily, that's about 50% of the evaluation, uh, but also the level of investment that banks make into businesses or uh, other financial institutions in low-income areas, and then also the services they provide, how evenly spread they are and so on, that those need to become more quantitative to facilitate compliance, to make it less onerous on the institution to show their work and so on. And I think there is a case for a more quantitative approach. My concern is that financial institutions in America operate in very different contexts. There are very large MSAs that are very densely populated. There are places which have no bank branches but have a population that would like to use more financial services. There are suburbs. Uh, there are places that have a lot of residential segregation and places that are very uh, racially integrated. Um, and there are places that have a um, big dispersion of uh, upper and lower income residents and others that don't. And how do you come up with a standard that would apply nationwide in such a varied context without penalizing some institutions and benefiting others? I think that's a concern that I have in terms of moving to a metric approach, even though I um, would imagine that it probably facilitates a bank's understanding of the regulations. The other issue I have is that I don't see more of a focus on financial inclusion and access to sound credit uh, on the part of even proponents of CRA reform. In my view, the lesson of the last 15, 20 years is that credit can be very bad for you and that this the focus that we've had in America for some time and in other countries, uh, of course, on home ownership 
was in on some levels misguided because even though home ownership can be a wealth builder in certain circumstances it can make you much worse off and getting heavily indebted on a home in which you have very little equity you're making very big payments and if you become unemployed you're not going to be able to keep it and that will be a stain on your record for a long time i don't think helps anybody and minority communities were disproportionately affected i'm not linking this to the cra but the cra operates under the same framework of the more lending for uh, home buying that a community gets or an individual gets, the better off he or she will be in the future. And I'm not sure uh, that that is the case. I think we need to look much more at, as Aaron was saying, measures of access and how representative your credit score is of your actual likelihood of repayment uh, so that you can then get the choice that people in your circumstances would get, but don't necessarily have something given to you that is going to be harmful to you in the future. That was really great. Thank you, guys. Uh, in terms of the general public's knowledge of the Community Reinvestment Act, obviously it's probably relatively limited, as both of you guys have indicated. If you had to sort of sum it up in two or three sentences, what would be the most important thing that the public needs to know about this issue? Banks are chartered entities by the government designed not to fail with lots of public backing and support. They need to have an affirmative duty as part of their obligation to serve their full community. The CRA has been in place for a very long time, had nothing to do with the financial crisis, but instead is an important element designed to ensure as an affirmative obligation that banks serve their full community. I think the the most important thing to know about the CRA is that it doesn't give you an accurate picture or CRA performance doesn't give you an accurate picture of the lending environment in a particular community, especially now that we have increased bank branching, but we also have a lot of non-banks operating. And therefore, we should um, try and see if there are ways that the purpose of the CRA can be achieved more efficiently and in a way that reflects more the fact that we have new providers that are able to measure credit worthiness better. And also we have providers called community development financial institutions that focus specifically on identifying lending opportunities in underserved places. Well, thank you, Aaron and Diego, for an excellent conversation. For our listeners, is there a place that you'd like to direct them to learn more about the Community Reinvestment Act? I direct them to uh, Aaron Klein's site on the brookings.edu website. Uh, Diego, you've written several very good pieces on this, particularly uh, the one regarding the Washington Post, which, uh, the Washington D.C. area, which I think was published in was a Politico. Yes, well, I had to one on one in the Washington Post, Post and the other one in Politico. Politico. Yeah. Those are both great. Uh, there was a comment letter from the um, Center for Responsible Lending. So there was a notice and comment process that the OCC did. There was a speech by FDIC Vice uh, former Chairman Gruenberg on CRA, uh, and and Diego's done a, a tremendous amount of research on it. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you guys again, and to our audience, we'll see you guys next time. Federal Society's Regulatory Transparency Project, thanks for tuning in to the Fourth Branch Podcast. To catch every new episode when it's released, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spreaker. For the latest from RTP, please visit our website at regproject.org. That's R-E-G project.org. This has been a FedSoc audio production. 